Tell Me Podcast. I'm your host, Ilya. On this episode, I have a chat with Richard H. Um, when I moved over to the UK from Australia and from law enforcement to the private sector, I didn't really know anyone. Um, I had no real points of contact uh, and hauled my ass uh, sort of on LinkedIn getting my network game on. Uh, and the one name that kept popping up was Richard H. Um, for, for positive reasons. Uh, anyways, I sent a connection request uh, and fast forward nearly sort of a year and a half now. Uh, Richard's been very receptive to my messages, supportive uh, of, of this podcast. Um, and during this chat, it was fantastic getting his insight into the state of uh, the security industry uh, in the UK. Uh, so Richard started off his journey into close protection. Uh, I suppose uh, we, we delved into the podcast, but joined the military in 1989, uh, initially trying out for the parachute regiment. Um, soon after, he undertook roles in the Royal Military Police, uh, where he was drawn into the close protection um, uh, wing of the RMPCP. Um, after leaving the military, he continued to pursue his career in the private sector, um, uh, working on high-end tasks and operations. Uh, and then soon after, Richard and his business partner saw a need to raise the industry standards, um, and they started their own company called Mobius. Uh, employing only those uh, with sort of the history and experience uh, coming from government level CP backgrounds. Um, as a sort of close protection or security subject matter expert, uh, Richard's been uh, a critic of the SIA standards um, and continues to provide recommendations and certainly isn't afraid to call out issues and flaws uh, that are currently present. Um, it's something that, you know, as a newcomer uh, in the industry, it's, it's really nice to see um, after all these years, him having so much passion uh, for the industry and, and you know wanting to, to make it go into a, a more positive direction. Um, he's also, you know, just another thing to add, also a best-selling author and has literally written the book on close protection uh, with the revised edition coming out uh, in October uh, in a couple months' time. Uh, you, you'll find the links to sort of all, all of his contact details um, and, and the book uh, details on the links below. Um yeah, you know, as, as a newcomer to the UK and the private security industry, I really enjoyed our conversation. Richard, thank you so much for your um, service in the military and your continued service now in the private sector. Uh, thank you for your time. And like I mentioned before, your just your continued passion for this industry. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I um, hope you guys are having uh, a great time listening on these podcasts, um, on these episodes, rather. And um, thank you for all your support. Uh, again, please find Richard on the links uh, below. Cheers. All right, everyone. We've got Richard H. here, um, all the way from uh, down south in England. Um, thanks, Richard, for being on the podcast. Uh, just a bit of a quick blurb. I, I'll do an intro as well. But um, when I moved from Australia over to the UK, uh, and I was sort of navigating whether I want to you know, go back into policing or the private sector, I was leaning more towards the private sector just for a, a bit of a change. 
Um, and, you know, speaking to people, doing my due diligence, uh, a few sort of handful of companies kept coming up um, and uh, certain individuals or people came up and, and you were one of those names that sort of kept popping up uh, with different people that I spoke to. Uh, nothing but good things to say, you know, highly professional, uh, lots of experience and a subject uh, matter expert in the field itself. So um, when I reached out, it was it was amazing that you you know you were very open and uh, and happy to to support you know my endeavors with this podcast um, okay. and just to have a chat. So absolute honor to have you on the podcast. Man. Thank you, Harry. It's good to be here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's get started. So basically, um, the way it works chronologically, I'll just sort of ask you questions about you know your life, um, what sort of what led you to where you are now, what has in store, uh, that that sort of thing. So. Yeah, in as much detail as possible, tell me about your beginnings. Well, um, I suppose you we can start all the way back to 1989, really, where I, where I joined the, the army. Um, and uh, at the time, of course, when I joined the army, I didn't know anything about close protection. So I, uh, I joined the parachute regiment training. Um, and in those days, uh, it's not unlike today, uh, there is not any information on that on any online facility or anything like that the only information on the training i had was on the back of a combat and survival magazine um so my fitness was absolutely terrible um i, I joined the army of me eyes pretty much closed to what was in store for me and it was a baptism of fire um and uh, a harsh a harsh uh, knock to reality of what was expected of me i subsequently failed the parachute selection process and I moved uh, trade to the military police where I got posted to Northern Ireland, in effect doing a soldier's job. Um, but I found myself surrounded by people um, who, to all intents and purposes, in my mind, shouldn't have been in the army, let alone wear a uniform. And I wasn't, I didn't feel comfortable in that environment. Um, but one day I saw someone getting off a helicopter. He had an unconventional weapon, uh, no headdress. And I, I approached him and I said, oh, what is it you do? And he says, oh, close protection of the military police. Um, so he told me about it and I was immediately hooked. Um, but I had a personal challenge set in my mind. I started going out, doing an awful lot of running, getting myself fit. And I put in a transfer back to the palace to fulfill a personal ambition. Um, it was something I wanted to do. So a few few weeks later, um, I passed a selection and went up to um, battalion where I spent a little over four or five years um up there uh, but i still had close protection in the back of my mind um i then conducted a couple of civilian courses with a view to leave the army um and uh in my naivety sent off the cv and uh, certificates of these courses hoping to have that land that long-term position um but of course no experience uh or anything like that and in those days it's unlike today where uh there's a great deal more um knowledge uh about the profession um and a lot more requirements for the profession itself for the for the service um so occupations were restricted in that profession in those days and i um i thought well how can i make best use of the position i'm currently in and i remembered the lad getting off the helicopter and i transferred back to the military police again to do the whole training again solely to do cp yeah. um so in 1996, I did the RMPCP course. And in those days, as I'm sure it pretty much is today, the normal policy is when you're in a military police and you do the CP course, if you're lucky, 
you'll get selected for a tour. Uh, more often than not, you have to wait to be selected for the tour. Um, and when you do go on tour, which is usually around the six months protecting a, a British ambassador, you then go back into the normal police work environment and you wait a couple of years before you're going on another tour. Now, for anyone like me who's passionate about CP, um, you're not interested in doing police work. You don't want to go back and doing the normal uh, core job of that unit. Um, I transferred solely to do CP and I wanted to do CP all the time. Unfortunately, I landed on my feet and I did back to back CP uh, in excess of five years before then deciding to leave. Um, so coming out into the private sector, having operated in CP pretty much at the pinnacle of what the UK government has to offer, um, I was shocked at the level of standards. Uh, this is pre SIA, which is the UK's regulator of the industry. Uh, which didn't come into effect until 2006. So I left in 2001 and I was absolutely, as I say, I was shocked as to the low level of standards um, being displayed on the streets. Yeah. So having entered the private security yeah. sector, um, I was then approached, um, in effect headhunted, where I landed on my feet again um, and provided close protection to a high net worth um, a very prominent businessman for the following 19 years. Um, and then I decided to form a, a company with my co-founder. So in effect, so I have been conducting non-stop close protection since 1996, yeah. um, either on the ground working for the most part um, or managing and leading the teams as well. So it's, um, it's something that pretty much I've done most of my working life now. And looking back over the years, it's incredible how you see the development and progress of a profession you're passionate about. And it, it does, to some extent, it pleases me in how it has developed, um, even though it's, it's developed very slowly, sluggishly, um, with a lot of uh, commentary um, that is incorrect. But the, the people that are presenting this commentary on the industry is not really any of a fault of their own because training standards on a global scale for the profession are so low yeah. that um, any end user doesn't know what is to be expected of the standard. As far as they're concerned, it's a, a form of insurance and a, a provision of service to, to provide that warm and fuzzy feeling for them, um, more often than not as a life smoother. Um, and, that, and because they see that's close protection operative on the streets, that is in effect ticks their box. They don't understand or um, appreciate the full requirements of the role in itself. Um, and But here we are, we're, we're in a better place than what we were 25, 30 years ago, um, but it's still not fit for purpose. Yeah, I, I agree with, with, with that. We'll, we'll go further into that um, sort of rabbit hole as well. But just a bit to unpack there. So 1989, I was, a year old <laughs> so just just starting a walk probably um so you said you um, originally started um and, and you went down the the parachute regiment route what was the uh, draw one to the military and then two for the, the parachute regiment um given that there wasn't as much context or reading material as you have you know these days through websites social media that sort of thing what, what drew you to that that line of work in the first place there was nothing, there was no other career. I mean, I was 19 years old. There was no um, career that screamed out to me. Um, academically, I was pretty much average. Um, nothing there out there of interest to me. Um, and it was a military life that appealed to me. 
um, for all of the uh, the reasons that anyone joins the military. Um, it's it's one of those things where um, it's uh, becomes a personal ambition, a challenge to do, uh, and then to enjoy life while you're at it. Um, the reason why I chose the powers is because I saw it as a, a very tough um, a tough unit to join and prove to yourself you can do it. Um, and this is one of life's learning curves, isn't it? We, we try these things, we fail them, we get up and we do it again. And you keep doing it until we pass. And it's a, uh, it's a character building process. <laughs> well, that, that character building process, I feel like, um, you know, and, and I'm certainly not an old man by any standards or anything, but like, it's, it's something that I feel is, is sort of lost these days where you, you try something, you don't succeed. And then you imagine you, you, know, you sort of put it off completely, uh, and, and absolutely. And go on absolutely. So that, that resilience building. So what, what was, you know, it's, it's, it's nice and obviously it's refreshing hearing when people have that resilient sort of mindset where you fail, get up, dust yourself off, try again. Um, what was it like at the time, uh, you know, as, as a young man uh, failing in that, in that one aspect where, where it's something that, you know, you thought you'd be good at, um, but, but clearly because there wasn't enough text or, or uh, information out there for you to, you know, understand what the physical standards were and all that sort of stuff. How, how did you cope with that? Like, what, what did you do? Well, <laughs> to be entirely uh, um, objective about this, it wasn't really 100% my fault because when I went to the Army Careers Office and you come to take the, the attestation in those days uh, with a retired colonel or whoever he was, um, he suggested that I actually join the military police and not the powers uh, because I did well on the Domino's test or whatever it was in those days. So um, it was always at the back of my mind about joining the military police. And also I could see that as a um, as a, a natural progression into civilian life at the end of that into the normal police. Um, that was not sort of my mindset, but there was something about the powers that I wanted to do to prove to myself that I could do it. I was brought up in a fairly sheltered um, life somewhat, um, and I wanted to experience the full hard knocks of reality in, in that environment. And it's, uh, I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. Um, so that was, that was the, the main reason really why I went for that. Um, in those days, uh, P Company, as it was called, was in 12 weeks. So from civilian to passing a very harsh uh, fitness regime testing um, in three months was quite a high ask of me at the time because my fitness was so bad and it was something I had to work at. I ended up enjoying it and ended up being fairly good at it. Um, and it becomes a way of life more than solely doing it because you had to. You're doing it now because you enjoy it uh, and because your current industry profession um, requires it of you. Um, and it's, it's one of those aspects, fitness, uh, in, in terms of um, the requirement of close protection, isn't, uh, isn't actually taken on full on board. Uh, and when you look around the streets, you see how on earth that guy can walk up a flight of stairs and there he is with an earpiece in. It's, it's, it's a stark reality of what um, the low standards of training um, uh, delivers, really, when there is no terms of no selection, no minimum age, no minimum fitness, medical or mental fitness requirements whatsoever uh, is open to all in sundry. Um, so, yes, I mean, in terms of um, proving to myself, getting a job done, doing it, getting it out of the way and then cracking on with the rest of your your life for the rest of your career it was so it was something i mean it, looking back um i wouldn't have changed a thing 
um, because you learn from you learn from these experiences, and it makes you stronger and better person as a result. Exactly right, and like you were saying, even it's something as simple as you know, physical fitness. It's in institutions like the military uh, to some extent, I suppose maybe the police. It, it becomes it's a discipline that you learn as well, and and so you might not be motivated to go to the gym today, but you're disciplined enough to go. I'm going to go to the gym like I did yesterday and the day before, and you know it's 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 part of the toolbox that encompasses my my skills as a you know, CP operative, as a door supervisor, whatever it may be. Um, but you know it certainly starts at the baseline level of having good physical fitness. You know you can sort of yeah. you're you're more resilient. Um, so my audience is sort of uh, it's out at 35 countries now, I believe. Um, and so a third of it's the UK, the, the main, the big countries are the UK, um, Australia and the US. So for those other countries, um, well, can you explain more about the RMP CP um, and, you know, like place, places like America, you have so many different agencies that, that do protection details from, you know, um, the Secret Service, obviously, mm. uh, but when you're in theater, it sort of goes to some tier one units doing PSD type mm. work. How does uh, the RMPCP sort of work uh, in comparison to other countries or other uh, jurisdictions? Yeah, of course. So the UK government has um, three main deliveries of close protection um, in terms of departments and units. Um, and predominantly that is uh, the Royalty and Specialist Protection of the Metropolitan Police, um, Royal Military Police Close Protection, and those within special forces uh, that deliver close protection um, in specific circumstances. So, for example, say, for example, a British ambassador is in country where there's um, severe uh, instability and unrest, where an extraction needs to occur, they will then go in, um, protect the guy and, and extract him out of the country. That, that sort of scenario in the SF um, community. So those, those three main units provide close protection. There is um, a couple of others um, that also do it, that are um, more secretive. Um, but uh, apart from that, that is what UK government delivers. They, they are in effect the, the, the tier one, if you want to call it that, um, delivery of, of protection, yes. Yeah, and in terms of, you know, we we're chatting about CP in the uh, civilian or private sector, uh, what role does a CP operative who's not in any of those agencies but has an SIA CP license you know, have to do with with anything uh, at that level of, uh, of protection? Is, is there any scope for the, for somebody with an SIA CP license holder to sort of jump in there as well? Or um, is it just a, a no-go zone? It's very easy to, 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 to actually immediately answer with that with a no. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but the answer is actually yes. And it is yes, because um, what we have in the UK military specifically is a term called all arms course. Now, when, when the course is available in the military, usually the courses are only specific for that trade you are in. When a course is all arms, it means it's open to everyone. So, for example, anyone going, wishing to join special forces, for example, such as the SAS, the, the actual selection process is open to all arms, which means it's open to the RAF, it's open to the Navy, it's open to the, any, any trade in the Army. Anyone can actually apply for it and attend that selection um, as long as they meet the, the criteria of physical fitness and everything. So, Royal Military Police Close Protection 
is solely for those in the main who are actually Royal Military Police. It's also open to RAF Police, it's also open to Royal Marines Police, and of course you will also have foreign units, mainly police units, specialist counter-terrorism units, that will also attend the course as well. So it's not all arms. Now, I've also always been of the, the mindset that the course should be all arms. And the reason for that is because you're opening the door to a more uh, wider um, window of candidate. And you can then increase the selection process for the candidates to enter that course. So, for example, what you have now is a process where someone can join the army, attend Royal Military Police basic police training, wait two years before their substantive corporal rank, then they can apply for the close protection course. So when you're actually viewing that, that individual may only be 21 years old. So the actual military experience he's got is very low. The actual life experience he has is very low. And here he is being able to actually apply for that course. Now, of course, I, I don't know how things are these days. Maybe maybe, uh, maybe the, the hoops and hurdles that people have to jump through are different to when it was in my time. But certainly when I can uh, comment on the time that I was in, the, the actual window for everyone applying was very, uh, was very narrow. So um, as a result of that, the end result is a certain uh, candidate base or a trained operative base ready for deployment. So the course was only open to RMP, RAF and the Royal Marines Police as well. But in, in the main, it's only RMP, CP, you see. And when you had the Sandpit environments kick off, Iraq, Afghanistan, you've got embassies in these countries, the, um, the actual um, requirement uh, for the close protection role from UK government PLC was such that the RMP couldn't actually fulfill the requirements. And so what has happened is the commercial sector then took over. So the likes of the uh, G4S, Guard the World and what have you, will employ people, um, usually uh, former military or police, um, in the main who, have, who are not actually former close protection from those units, they're basically just former military in the main, um, who have done the SIA course. Now, the reason why they stipulate the SIA course isn't because the SIA course uh overlaps any requirement of a high risk environment that's that's far from it doesn't it's not even fit for purpose for the uk let alone any higher risk environment yep. but what we have is a process where um someone who uh applies and gains an sia license has actually gone through a uh a vetting process an hr process uh but basically the holder of that card is who they say they are yep. um and 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 so on it's it's a great uh saving on on human resources in vetting uh they know they have a government recognized license and let's let's face it a lot of these commercial entities that stipulate an SIA license do so because during a tendering process for example they are able to say this are all of our candidates have a uk government recognized uh regulators close protection license it's recognized by the uk government and even though people in the, for the majority of the times they don't fully appreciate or understand what that entails or how how low that benchmark is on paper that looks a lot better than other countries for example where they don't even have any regulator for that industry whatsoever yeah, so on paper it looks good yeah. it saves the hr yeah 
the um the, the fact that there is a you know a sort of a countrywide body that regulates it is is, is a checkbox in the right direction at least um, i was speaking on the, the last episode with um uh, um, another cp operative and former police officer in australia and he was saying like state to state there is sort of uh you have to have a license but as you would know you know if you're working with an ultra high net worth high net worth individual chances are they're going to be wanting to travel between those states and not just stay in their one state so he has then had to get qualifications for each state and then as a business also have qualifications for each state and obviously like, that's, that's just, you know absolutely absurd and it's just, it sounds like it's the same for america as well where there's yeah. no yeah. sort of federal structure it's just uh it's yeah. all sort of cowboys it's, out there really i mean you, you you've hit the nail on the head as far as the us is concerned there um each state has got its own requirements so some states don't even recognize the profession. Some states say that, uh, oh, you've got to have a concealed carry weapons permit and that's it. Some states say you've got to have a security guard license where basically it's just a three day course. It's not federal, as you say, it's not a federal requirement. And so what you have is from state to state, you have varying degrees of zero training uh, to very little training. Um, there, is not one, there is not one single course anywhere in the private sector on a global scale that is fit for purpose. Yeah. What a statement. Yeah. What a statement. Not one single course is fit for purpose. And you've got to ask yourself why. Uh, and the, the answer is very simply is because this is the private sector. And within the private sector, you have market forces at work. Yeah. So where, for example, you have a, a government a regulator that have imposed a certain uh, standard to obtain a government recognized license, the ticket in the box to actually be able to go onto the streets of the UK and work. Um, what incentive or what power does any other uh, company have when they're actually fighting the duration, content and cost of the course? Yeah. Because when a, when a prospective student says to himself, I want to do close protection, what do I require? I need an SIA license. Why pay four and a half five and a half six eight thousand pounds for a four five six week course when they can actually do it in 20 days yeah. uh, for a cost of 1200 quid yeah. it, there's there is no there is no comparison you do no one anyone could write a, a, a proper course <clears throat> well you could have a proper course written yeah. uh, and put it out there but yeah. no one will come along and do it because of the cost yeah and uh, and the arguments against um, the arguments, the typical commentary you have um, against a fit for purpose course are such based on um, there's no there's no evidence that an eight week course is better than a two week course. Uh, there's um, uh, it's only a starting block. Uh, you learn on the job. All of these excuses or, or, or even excuses such as um, uh, a driving license doesn't make you an expert driver. I mean, it, it's, it's almost it's almost comical listening to these excuses and, and the thing is when you ask the industry is close protection a serious service serious profession you'll get the, uh, a resounding yes from everyone pretty much well if it's yes why then don't you actually focus on delivering the highest standards possible in training yeah. you can't it's a, it's a conflict of interest it, it's one of those things that's always really i wouldn't say bugged me like it, it infuriates me really because you know, we're in an industry where we're protecting someone's uh, life, livelihood, uh, reputation. If, if something goes wrong, it's not a, a case of, 
uh, we'll work on you know that accounting problem tomorrow or uh, it will send that email another day it's it's then and there it could be in some cases obviously life and death as well so you know to, to, it, it really bothers me that there's no um uh the barriers to entry one are so low and there's no continual uh you know annual top up of let's say physical fitness performance uh you know risk mitigation and planning things like that um but again it's still better than nothing which is which is i think what they're banking on the other thing I would imagine as well is like we're saying, you know, the course providers uh, delivering courses that are shorter, that are cheaper. So economically, there's an incentive there for them to just, you know, ram people through. I would imagine politically as well, having the SIA, um, I suppose, the, the more people that have these licenses, there's more potential for employment. And so like I would imagine on a political scale, they could go, well, we're helping contribute to, you know, the economy in terms of employability and growth in that sector. Is that, is that something that's been an excuse that you've, you've seen come across as well? Or? So um, I've been uh, haranguing and stressing out the security industry authority since they've been coming into um, practice in 2006. So pretty much all the time I've been having to go, I've been lobbying government, campaigning for higher standards. Um, I've written off to uh, various ministers, the Home Secretary, um, the SIA themselves. Um, I sat down with my local MP to actually get in there. He supported my initial um, inquiry in approaching the, the Minister of State for Security and Policing uh, with a view for me sitting down in front of her and presenting the, um, the reasoning behind why we should actually have higher standards in place protection. Um, but it hit a, hit a brick wall, you see. And you soon, it was only really in the last couple of years where I sat back and looked at the whole situation and trying to understand why the SIA are so anti imposing higher standards possible. Because when you're actually asking them, why, why don't you impose a driving license? Why don't you impose a minimum age? Why don't you impose uh, proper, proper physical intervention? Why don't you impose, uh, impose medical and fitness tests? Why don't you impose, um, uh, the whole host of, of, of content. Okay, you're, you're restricted to the UK, I understand that, I get that. But why don't you impose the whole host of content required for that course to enable someone to be effective in the working environment? Yeah. In other words, why don't you have a course that is in a minimum five weeks long uh, instead of your instead of your, your 12 days or, or 16 days or whatever it is now? Yeah. And you, over the years, it, it, it actually confused me why they didn't. Uh, and it's only in the last couple of years where I actually realise it's not the SIA's fault to a certain extent, because the Private Security Industry Act 2001, when it was passed, when you look at the wording of it, uh, you'll see a, you'll see you'll read a body is to be formed to work on behalf of the Home Office uh, to regulate. Uh, the industry and impose um, and to raise standards and regulate the industry. So the Home Office have several remits, one of which, uh, or rather two of which, is to um, increase taxation and reduce burdensome on the welfare state. Okay. So uh, a perfect example of this for, for, uh, to highlight is the fact that what is what the government has initiated a few years ago was if someone is on benefits 
Uh, so in the UK, you're on a, they're on the welfare state. The government is financially supporting them because they don't really have a proper income. Yeah. They can go into a job centre and say, I want to be a bodyguard. They can then go on a close protection course free of charge at the government's expense. An SIA close protection course, okay? So you're an ex-plumber, ex you're an ex-roofer, whatever. You can go on a CP course um, and obtain your SIA license that way. Because what the Home Office is doing, you see, is trying to get that individual off the welfare state yeah. into a job to pay taxes. And by imposing, by, by having an SIA, imposing age minimums, driving license, medical fitness, mental fitness testing is actually imposing barriers to employment. Yeah. It's a default setting. Um, if you if you have a course and you're saying to you're saying to um, the, the, the prospective population out there, you must be a minimum of 27 years old, hold a driving license for five years. Da, 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 da. These are hurdles that yeah. everyone needs to do to actually attain the course. Yeah, you've got so the SIA. Because the SIA works on behalf of the Home Office, they can't be imposing uh, um, barriers that are in uh, conflict with the remit of the Home Office. Yeah. So you, you have a body, in effect, with their hands tied, even though, in effect, they could actually turn around to the Home Office and say, we do, just do not agree with this. This is what the industry needs. Yeah. This, is, this is what is a serious profession, and it's serious, a serious business, and a serious reasoning for any prospective client, actually, um, obtaining that service, yeah, and and it's uh, they don't do that because they don't have any knowledge about the job itself. Um, I mean, for example, when the SIA was formed, you have a director of Vauxhall Motors. You would have um, directors of uh, this and that that have no uh, overlapping to the security industry whatsoever. I think there was only one that was had a, a director or chairman of a prison service association that was involved. I mean, now it's a very a very slow sort of step, uh, but it's conducted to to prove, to make a point that they've done it. Yeah. Uh, some people are, are actually have an SIA CP license on the board of the SIA. It's all lip service and token gesture. And these people, they don't really have any proper knowledge or understanding of the profession as a whole. Yeah. No in-depth uh, experiences or operating at the highest levels in order to provide proper effective advice and guidance on what should be required in the, in the private sector world yeah and and what you have is a is a process of minimalistic form it's a lip service token gesture um to appease the home office you see they they their their hands are tied and, and really when you look at it it's the home office but the thing is when you actually look at this in detail okay this is the home office remit this is why the SIA are acting what, how they are. There are around, uh, if I'm correct, around 400,000, for example, for, for argument's sake, 400,000 people in the private security industry in the United Kingdom. There's 15,000 people who have SIA CP licenses. Now, when you actually drill that down again, a vast, vast majority of that 15,000 um say half of that probably aren't working in the security industry anymore yeah so you're now coming down to seven thousand out of that seven thousand uh you're probably looking at um half again who are not even on you don't even do cp regularly that the rest of the three and a half thousand um probably half of that are 
in some form of constant CP involvement. Yeah. The other half are, uh, are dipping in and out sort of thing. Yeah. So it's a, it's a situation where when you're actually drilling down and you're taking that 15,000 percentage over the 400,000, in effect, so I think that works out at 3.75% right. of the 400,000. Now, if, if the Home Office has a concern about reducing the welfare state, increasing taxation, taxation revenue, that actual 3.75% doesn't equate to an awful lot for them. Exactly. So yeah. why, why should uh, the regulator, who's responsible for wheel clamping, door supervising, key holding and all the host of other um, lower end security functions, why, does, why don't we take CP away from the grasp of the SIA? and have a proper committee in charge of it. Yeah. A committee that's had a board members of those who have worked and experienced in close protection, understand what the working and methodology is, is proper and right for the, um, the commercial world. Yeah. The SIA can still be responsible for the licensing process and the regulation of those individuals, but let's take it away from, the, let's take the training responsibility away from the SIA. Yeah, exactly. have, a, have a complete set because what's the impact onto the home office in a tax revenue? Yeah, it's virtually minimal, virtually minimal, and yet the standards out there for any prospective client. And here we are. I mean, I am a, I'm, a, I'm all in support of the UK flying the British flag of standards and all the rest of it. And here's an art, an example of where it just doesn't, it doesn't wash, it doesn't meet the, um, the, the, the how can you put a British flag next to SIACP standards? Yeah, it, they don't go together. Exactly right, and um, you know it's 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 great like hearing the sort of the breakdown of the stats because yeah, like you said, on paper yes, everyone has this qualification, but in reality, not everyone is in a job using that qualification. So it just it just doesn't it just doesn't add up. Um, I just want to go back to just back to the beginning again, where um, so your transition out of the military um, that was pre SIA. What was what was the lay of the land like then? Um, like, what did you have to do? Did you because at the time, I think, was the main training provider the Ronin sort of course out of South Africa, or were there were there some in the UK already? Um, like, how did it all work pre-SIA? Um, well, I, I went on to a permanent team in London okay. um, for about a year. Um, it was a week-on, week-off setup, and a week-off I did was managing a, a surveillance job. Um, but I mean. It provided, it provided a, uh, a means to an end for me. I got to learn London very well. Um, and it's a, uh, it was a, a pretty much a solid long-term uh, position to have from leaving a, this, the stability and security of a, a military job uh, to come to the private sector is quite a transition in a yeah. way. Um, and it still is for an awful lot of people leaving their services. Um, but it, it provided a means to an end before you could actually move on. Um, the, the job was um, mainly uh, comprised of former government people, um, actually a, a lot of XRMP on the job, um, but it was uh, I was just shocked at how poorly it was run. Um, there was a nasty undercurrent of um, um, the, 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 the rank structure from the mob overlapping uh responsibilities and seniority within that job right. and it was uh um it was a, it was just an ask the undercurrent of what was going on it was very poorly led and run uh it could have been really good uh yeah. and that comes down to poor leadership you see yeah. um if you don't have the right leader 
the right star management in, in the position, it will all filter down um, and you'll have a high turnover of people. Uh, the actual performance level will be poor. Um, it will just be, it's just the, the bad seed where everything grows in the wrong direction, really. Yeah. Uh, what, what did you have to have? Like, because obviously if there was no SIA licensing, um, was it just a, a case of, you know, applying like with a CV or like what was the credential? Like, what what did you need to operate as a as a close protection operative or as a bodyguard, whatever the the title may have been back then? Well, I mean, there, there were there were um, commercial training courses. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and the and the thing is, if you were to compare um, a training course in those days to what it is now, um, there's an there's an element of um, in today's world, it's more structured. Yeah, it's a proper structured course now. Where in those times it was, um, you're bouncing around, doing one thing one day to another thing. It was all a, a bit of a mishmash yeah. joined together. Um, there was a couple of courses that were very good, um, and uh, it was more a case in terms of actual jobs. Uh, it was more of a, a jobs for the boys um, aspect, um, more than anything else. It was uh, more of a closed a closed circuit yeah. as opposed to an open one that it is now. Yeah. Um, the, the thing that rubs against me in, in the, when you make a comparison between the government and private sector is such that with the, with the, with the um, influence of the SIA um, and the approach uh, and the conduct of low standards from poor training to the delivery of operations on the ground is such that it's all been treated as a gig economy. Right. So what I mean by that is um, it's not treated as a trade. So I think if you were to actually look into the definition of what constitutes a trade, um, it actually is a, a trade is formed from a specific margin of training. Yeah. Um, now, if that training is poor, then it ceased and the occupation ceases to be a trade. Uh, so, so what you have is is what you have in the UK is not is the CP is not really a trade as such because the training is so poor. Yeah. It's not a it's not a unique skill set at the end of it yeah. uh, because everything is just very much lip service. If you look down the actual list of training core competencies of the SIA, they don't read badly. I mean, no. Yeah, there could be additional ones, proper additional ones as well, a whole host of additional ones that they've omitted. But the actual current list isn't that bad yeah. um you think great yeah well okay that's what it is but when you actually look at the content of each uh title or subtitle in that list the content doesn't reflect what's required everything is is brisk and breezy it's all it's all run over extremely quickly yeah um and if you were to look at um if you were to sit down with any um academic researcher in terms of um understanding the learning curve of a student um, they will say they will say something quite fascinating in terms of um, when you sit down for a forty-minute lecture, say at university. Immediately after that lecture, you walk out the door. You would have forgotten seventy percent of what you were told. Yeah. Can you believe that? Seventy percent. After twenty-four hours, you will forget ninety percent, and after a couple of weeks, you won't really remember anything about it at all. Yeah. And that is just absolutely incredible. That's just from a 40 minute lecture. Yeah. So when you have, when you actually consider the learning curve of a lip service approach to a specialist training, 
it's not just skill fade because there is no skill. Yeah. It's actually a knowledge thing, how you can put that knowledge into, into actual practice. Yeah. And at the end of that, you see the actual performance. What, what is happening is someone is actually attending this two-week course, going out into the open world, onto the streets, at times even working on their own, yeah. um, where, where an end user client isn't actually receiving anything. He's, yeah. All he's getting is an empty suit stood on the streets yeah. because that individual, no fault with their own, hasn't been trained to the level they should have been. Well, that's not exactly right. I'm, having been to uni, I can certainly attest to that. <laughs> and, and hence why, you know, uh, you, you do so much time uh, is, is devoted to your hours outside of uni, you know, going over your notes, rewriting your notes. Uh, if you have the possibility of listening to the lectures online, yeah. getting out a textbook, but there's, there's none of that for, for the yeah. CD course. No. And, and you mentioned a trade, for example, you know, like if we go into um, like an electrician, for instance, there's an apprenticeship period, um, there's, it takes years to, to become you know, a fully qualified yeah. licensed electrician. Not the case for CP, obviously. And like we mentioned before, it's a, it's a job where you're protecting life and property and you know, all, all that sort of stuff. The important, you know, crucial life-saving skills. Um, you know, there, there's stuff that's perishable, like your, your hard skills, certainly if you're not doing, if you're not going to the gym, you're not, uh, obviously there's no firearms in the UK. Uh, but you're not doing your physical intervention style courses, whether it be martial arts, jujitsu, whatever it may be, that's all perishable. But the knowledge base, like you were saying, um, that, that's something that, uh, yeah, you just don't get out of the course whatsoever. Um, and I think it's, it's, yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but, but again, it creates that barrier of entry, which they clearly don't want because you're, you're putting off thousands, thousands of people getting this license. Um, how do you see, I think recently um, they've incorporated that physical intervention component to the to the CP top-up course. Or, or is that again, in your opinion, like a bit of lip service um, or what's your, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I know a couple of lads that were actually involved in the process. Um, when it came to the end of that process and they had to sign off what the SIA decided, they refused to sign it off and they just, they removed themselves from it. Yeah. Um, the physical intervention, or I prefer to use the term I'm on combat, yep. um, is, um, is something that I've constantly harassed the SIA about, right from the word go. It's one of the ones I immediately saw in 2006, or 2005, actually, that they had failed to uh, include. And of course, you, you turn up to these SIA uh, seminars, um, they're... Uh, they're um, uh, the, the little functions they have to to, to um, sit down with the industry um, and uh, engage with them and, and uh, even online seminars and, and you question them. Yeah. Why aren't you including physical intervention skills? And they say, um, they, don't, they, they say, oh, you'll be infringing on a gray area or it's down to the employers or training providers responsibility. Okay, right, we now fast forward um, what was it 16 years um, to this year where they've imposed it they've now included it yeah. and you'll say why haven't you included why didn't you include physical intervention all those years ago when I when I mentioned it to you and they, their statement is it wasn't identified during the consultation process now I, I wrote my first book my first book was published in 2012 I sent a copy to the chief executive Bill Butler of the SIA um, I didn't receive any 
any compliment, any feedback whatsoever. <laughs> I wasn't expecting one. Um, but the thing is, they can't turn around and say it wasn't identified during the consultation process because I immediately told them about it. And it becomes a state of, um, at the time, it, 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 the actual reality and truth of the matter is such that they didn't want to include it because um, it would increase the duration of the course, uh, which then in, incurs a further cost to the student and all the, all the, all the other private sector uh, excuses. The reason why they've only included it now isn't because they've realized they've had a, a miraculous divine intervention that a realization that yes cp does require it what what they've done is they they have a term called uh, license switching or license integration so those people um, who have a close protection license that wish to also do the role of door supervisor um, instead of that individual who has a cp license has to attend a, the door supervisor training what they do is they include the door supervisor training into the cp license training which allows them to conduct ds work on the back of a cp license yeah what was happening because cp license uh because cp training didn't have physical intervention at the time you'd have those people who only had a ds license scratching their heads and saying you've got a cp license you're doing a door supervisor role but you haven't done any physical intervention that's not fair. Yeah. So all of this back chat is, hits the SIA. The SIA have turned around and said, yeah, they have a point. Okay, right, let's include DS, let's include door supervisor physical intervention training into the CP license. There you go, boom, done. So what you have is someone who doesn't want to do any DS work whatsoever, whatsoever, not interested in it at all. They attend a close protection course. Four or five days of that course is really nothing to do with close protection. It includes, as a result of the Manchester Arena bombing, it includes um, counter-terrorism terrorism awareness, it includes door supervisor physical intervention, it includes uh, some other health and aspect, health and safety aspect. It's just, you couldn't make it up. You yeah. really could not make it up. So even though they now have a two and a half week course in effect, it's still only a, it's still only a 13 day course really the CP, which is which all the content of which is very much uh, brisk and breezy uh, lip service. Yeah. So in terms of have the SIA imposed physical intervention with close protection? No, they haven't, because the content doesn't include um, any pain uh, enforcement, any 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 pain induced uh, moves. Yeah. It's all non non pain compliance. Yeah. It's all verbal communication or yeah. or gentle gestures. Or, or, or this or all of this sort of uh would you mind sir coming following me would you mind and, yeah. and all of this when when it actually hits the fan that individual will not stand a chance because yeah. firstly they're at the wrong age secondly they haven't got the physical ability firstly they haven't got the mental robustly um mental robustness and and fourthly they haven't got the training yeah. so everything isn't just actually as a result of one specific training admission it's actually a collective of everything that's wrong with it. Yeah. It's the perfect storm of um, everything that can go wrong will go wrong. Yeah. Uh, and this is a government regulator. Yeah. And it's absolutely, you couldn't create a more perfect example of something so terrible as this. Yeah. And, and the fact that, like, you know, you have people in the industry, SMEs or subject matter experts like yourself, coming to the forefront and, and highlighting these issues and then not 
you know, not even acknowledging it really, um, to the point where you've even written the book on close protection <laughs> um, yeah. and included these sorts of issues and highlighted them and, uh, and nothing's been done for, like you said, 15, 16 years is, is uh, just ludicrous. Um, uh, and then having, you know, with the, you mentioned before, like putting the SI, putting it, the onus on the course providers, um, I, I did my CP license with uh, Horizon uh, in, in Scotland, um, shout out to Horizon, uh, absolutely fantastic training company. I was the only, really the only uh, non-military person there. So it was, it was, it was a good pool of candidates as well. Um, and this was early 20, uh, sorry, early 2021. So before the introduction of the physical intervention stuff, and they actually incorporated into the course uh, or on, on our uh, combat, like you, you mentioned, uh, in the course before it was even a thing. So, you know, hats off to them as a training provider for, for incorporating it, but it should be a mandated thing because having, again, my experience in, in the private CP world is is, is uh, limited to the last two years that I've been here. But having been on certain teams where you go, oh, like, where, where did you do your course with? Like, uh, you know, like you have zero security background whatsoever. It was just, Oh, the pandemic hit and I was bored at my job. I was furloughed. And so, you know, I've, I've jumped on, like you said, the job seeker and I'm on this CP team now in London and, and I'm scratching my head. Like, uh, how is this even a possibility? Like, I, I, it's mind boggling. Um, but yeah, like, I, I feel like the having this massive organization like the SIA and then them just being able to fob it off, like, uh, it, it's, it's up to the training provider. It's up to your employer. Um, how do you feel? So, Another thing that you've done, obviously, is, is like you mentioned before, starting up your, your business, uh, your company, uh, Mobius. How, how do you approach it as an employer, uh, as a business, in terms of who you're recruiting uh, you know, for your various roles that you might have? Well, my, my co-founder I've known since infant school. Um, so I've known him for a good 40 years now. Um, and he's done business uh, all his life. Yeah. Um, and he, he approached me several years before we actually began the company, um, asking me, saying that well, I think we should start a company. And it took an awful lot for me to turn around and, and say, yeah, OK, let's let's do this. It took several years. Um, but one day I thought, do you know what? Yeah, it's a good idea. Let, let's do this. But I said to him, I says, there's a caveat to this. I said, I don't want to create one of the many other security companies out there. If we're going to do this, let's do this properly. It's going to be, we're going to deliver the highest standards that we can. And in terms of close protection and surveillance, particularly, we will only employ those who have been trained by the government. Yeah. We only employ former government operatives because as far as a baseline in which to move on, we know the standard that's going to get delivered to the client. We won't get any shaky knee syndrome by deploying anyone. We know where these guys are done. We know what their training has been um, uh, involved with and to the extent of their experience. Now, you can have um, someone who is not former government who has 10 years of experience. Now, to anyone, that might seem, wow, it's got 10 years of close protection experience. Very good. But what does that experience actually entail? I can be following someone around in a car, on foot, sat in hotel lobbies for 10 years. Yeah. Is that close protection experience? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It isn't. I mean, it may be in the private sector. That is, it is what it is. You're, you're doing CP and you're sat around, walking around, that's it. 
when you actually make a comparison um, to how the job is done properly, um, there, is, there is no comparison whatsoever. Yeah. So it's not just experience, it is exposure. And it's exposure to the types of operations you're involved in. And those operations where the seriousness of that provision um, highlights the level of that provision as well. So in terms of the private sector, what is the highest level of provision it can be? When you, when you dis, disregard sandpit environments, because to all intents and purposes, that's not proper CP. That's what that's the US terminology, PSD. Yeah. You're, you're, you're there with all the weapons ready to anti-ambush. That, that's, that's the sort of thing. This, we're talking close protection. And within a private sector, what do you have? You have red carpet events, you have celebrities, uh, rock stars, that sort of thing. You have the corporate style. Um, and corporate, it. if you're delivering a close protection in the corporate, requires a whole host of uh, differing um, character and training requirements um, that every other uh, provision doesn't include. And it's the, it's the, everyone says about the soft skills. It's a, it's a bit of an irksomely termed thing where actually what is soft skills? It's actually intelligence. That's what it is. Do you have the intelligent ability to be able to communicate in high social circles? Do you have the ability to be able to communicate without opening your mouth? Nonverbal communication in those circles is such a vital component that if you, if your deportment, your manner, um, your express, facial expression isn't correct, you'll be off the job because um, your whole demeanor, your, your, um, the way you are stood there and communicating, the way you're looking, isn't in line with the requirements of that position. Yeah. And when you're actually delving in, actually looking into such detail of the requirements of that individual, it becomes immediately apparent that um, it's very much a, a tier like this in the private sector, as it is anywhere else. It's at the top of, in terms of the requirements for that role. Especially if you want to stay in that long, um, that role for any, uh, have a bit of longevity in that position, you have to ensure that your laces are tied properly in all aspects. It's not just, it's not just about um, uh, <laughs> cleaning your shoes as an analogy. You've got to make sure that that shoe is fit for purpose yeah. and the laces are tied perfectly. And, it, and, and if it isn't, you, you won't last very long. Um, it's, it's not, the world doesn't go around because of politics, it goes around because of business. Yeah. And business interacts with politics. Um, they have, they go hand in hand. And when you're operating at that high level, you have to ensure that everything around that security provision is such that um, it is very finely tuned. There is no comparison to any other part of the private sector delivery yeah. where the requirements are so important. Um, so exposure in terms of an individual is vitally important. And when you have that character, when you have the CVs land on your desk, yes, he'll do, he'll do, he'll do. Rather than having to sift through in detail, um, it makes my life a lot easier. Yeah. Um, we, we don't get a shaky knee syndrome, as I said. We deploy um, the guys out on the ground. The client gets the highest level of service. And as long as that operation is, is managed um, with correct oversight, um, correct communication with the client, what's going on, how, how is everything going, um, a constant uh, feedback process 
Um, you, 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 it's very difficult to beat. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, I put myself in the private sector in terms of uh, I stick my head above the parapet. I basically like the blue touch paper and stand well back. Yeah. And it's one of those situations where if you don't speak up for standards, you won't change an industry you love. Sure. Yeah. If you do speak up for standards, you're going to upset an awful lot of people. Now, when you're looking at the private sector, close protection, um, worker, um, body of people, the vast majority of those have only done the SIA course. Yeah. Okay, they're ex-military, they might be ex-police. But the vast majority in terms of actual close protection work, all they've done is an SIA CP license and SIA CP based work. Yeah. They haven't done anything else. And it becomes a case of my, me sticking my head out and saying the course you've done is not very good. What you're actually doing on the ground is not very good. And uh, and by the way, um, this guy is better than you. Now, it's, it's a case of people need to understand that it's not a personal attack on them. Yes. It's, it's, it's an attack on the process of delivery at, at the responsibility of the UK Home Office and the UK regulator. It's not the individual's... Um, it's not the individual's um, fault. Yeah. Okay. It's, as I say, it's a collective fault, the perfect storm of why things are going wrong. And in my revised edition of the book, what I've done at the end is um, advice and guidance for the industry newcomer. And part of that is suggesting that if we all understand that the SIACP course is not fit for purpose and there's an inherent um uh mantra in the private sector commercial world of course collecting in terms of career professional de development let's do let's do uh tscm let's do advanced driving let's do medical yeah. and and so someone attends an SICP course knowing it's not fit for purpose they then say right well, how can i compete with everyone else out there oh medic let's do a medic course Freck three, there you go, got it. What next? TSEM, yeah, let's do that. There you go, got it. Let's do advanced driving. Yep, got it. There's my CV. It's not the correct process no. because when you actually rewind to actually what's your core fundamental reasoning for being here is close protection. Yeah. You haven't actually trained in close protection to the, to the level it should be. All yeah. you've done is a two-week course. Yeah. So why not revisit that? Okay. There are there are if you actually look on a global scale, as I said right at the beginning, there's not one single course in the private sector that's fit for purpose. But there's certain things you can do to solve this. Firstly, is to attend, get your SIA license, okay? So you're immediately available for work. There's courses in Israel, the US and Africa. Do all of them. Yeah. Now that is, that is a huge ask because it's so costly. Yeah. It's a huge ask. But the thing is, if, you, if anyone's actually serious about what they're doing, they will do this. Yeah. And if I was to have a CV on my desk with someone who's done four courses from four countries with it written underneath, this is the reasoning why I've done it. I understand and realize that the SICP course is not fit for purpose to operate effectively in a work, in a work, in a working environment throughout the world. This is the reason why I've done this course, this course, and this course. I'm now satisfied that I can't be trained any further at the moment in close protection um, I've maximized my limit in, in understanding how to conduct CP operations in yep. the private sector.
I am now going to progress on to advanced driving. Yeah. And, you, and you do advanced driving in the same manner. You do start off with a ROSPA, IAM course. You then go on to a proper anti-ambush, um, defensive evasive driving course, um, preferably run by a UK police advanced driving instructor. And you, you, do, you do all of these aspects to, to create that learning curve, to maximise your potential. Yeah. What is happening is the lip service process and approach by the SIA has been embraced by students, by the industry as a whole. Yeah. And, and everything today, and we're not just talking about the security industry, we're talking about Generation Z, Generation X or whatever it is at the moment. So all these, all these people out there that are leaving school, they want, they want to get this and they want it yesterday with a minimum of effort. Yeah. They're not prepared to put the time and effort in investing in themselves properly. And what they're doing is it's a very quick tick box. So a lot of blame can also fall at the feet of these associations and institutions of the industry where they require their membership to conduct uh, career professional development points. Yeah. It's a Tesco, Tesco club card style point system where you have to accrue a certain number of points throughout that year in yeah. order to renew your membership. The CBD orders and that sort of thing. Yes, yeah. And you can get points even for attending expos. How ridiculous is that? Yeah. Attending point, uh, getting points for uh, attending a webinar. It's, it's just absolutely comical. So um, here we have in the industry a, a, a methodology of someone who um, attends a two-week SIACP course, then starts to progress the process of attending all these other courses. If you were to actually take one of these out of in, in its own right, such as TSCM, you cannot learn technical surveillance countermeasures in five days. You can't learn it in two weeks. You can't learn it in a month. This takes years and years and years to learn and to become effective at it. It is a specialist subject matter in its own right. Close protection operatives should not be doing TSCM courses with a view to providing TSCM service. It's just, yeah, it's just chopping let, let them do, let them attend a TSCM awareness course to understand how you can defeat um, these devices, yeah. to understand how what someone is doing, a specialist is doing yeah. to defeat them, yeah. what you can do to proactively and passively um, be aware and counter these devices, um, and that sort of mindset. But don't start delivering TSCM service to clients based on a five-day course, yeah. because that is exactly the same sort of lip service as the SIA does in providing CP to the same client. It's, it's a ridiculous notion. It's a ridiculous process. And the whole thing of points collecting, course collecting solely for your CV is a yeah. ridiculous thing to do. And I think um, like you setting the standards for, for your own company, like it's obviously great for, for you and, and the company. Mobius, is that right? The, the name of yeah. the company? Yeah. yeah. So like obviously fantastic initiative. But I think, um, like you mentioned before, the, the current generation, even even just people just in, in the this this sort of era where that instant gratification, you, you do something, you've checked that box, and now I expect a job yeah. at the end of it. I think that there's also a bit of an enablement uh, there, you know, that from 
places like course course providers because obviously they're trying to attract as many people as possible to get their revenue streams going so you know you're getting all these promises where yeah we'll get you into a job straight away protecting x y and z celebrities you know the, the high life you get to go on these private jets and it's, it's a very small segment like we mentioned before when we you actually break it down it's only three percent of the actual you know industry that maybe even see any of that and at best they're probably doing rsp or residential security team type roles mm. um oh, you're, you're a bag carrier uh, you know effectively like and so uh, the the other issue that i've maybe come across and and i don't want to bag anyone but there's a lot of job posting and job sharing and propping people up um via obviously linkedin is a great place to network that's how we've met but these whatsapp groups these signal groups where what's your perspective on that because for me, posting a job on WhatsApp when you don't actually know who the end, that, that, who that person is even speaking to, and they're getting them a job where, where all they've got is a piece of paper and like these, you know, um, tick box qualifications, I see that as being problematic and as a, it, it, a way to drive down the industry standards. Um, what's what's your perspective? Obviously, I would imagine you you don't use the WhatsApp groups to recruit, um, but yeah, what. what What's your uh, mindset on on that sort of aspect of the industry? It's, a, it's, a, it's another example of how low the industry can be yeah. um, to, on the to, to actually um, a security company was approached by a prospective client um, saying, um, "I require close protection or surveillance um, in, in a week's time in London. I'm going to be there for for, for eighteen days. Um, I need a security car uh, with a security driver." and five CPOs. Um, the, the person receiving that um, then has to uh, go into his own database. And we're talking about a, just a normal pop-up security company. They go on a database um, and, and all companies have got their own databases. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. This is the, this is the process you do. And, you, you, yeah, and then you have to whittle down um, who is available. And it can be a long process of phoning people up. Are you available? So I understand in a way the purpose of setting up a WhatsApp group for the purpose of firing one message off yeah. in a, in a, uh, to make a process easy um, and immediate as well. So people, are, it, it, works for the, it works for the company, it works for the, the, uh, the worker who's on that group. But, but that um, works for sorry that works for people who you've already vetted. That's what you're, you're saying. Ah, I'm just coming just coming to that. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so um, so yes. So um, what you have is uh, a process that is fulfilled on the back of a WhatsApp group. For the most part, they are unvetted. Yeah. Um, and the reasoning why it's gone online to offline, in effect, is the fact that. Um, uh, if the prospective client approaches a company and, 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 and says this requirement, the company will then revert with a quote and they'll, they'll say, yes, that's uh, 500, 600 pounds per person per day. Yeah. And of course, they then have to put in an advert. Um, yes, that's, that's 200 pounds or 250 pounds per day. So if the client reads the advert, they're going to know the profit markup of, of that company, especially if that company has been um searched for and approached on the back of the likes of uh, linkedin for example so to actually put an advert would be a detriment to their 
to their fulfillment of that contract because the end user will see will see the markup and the um, could possibly take offense at the um, the profit making of it so it's in in terms of a company looking at the whole situation objectively it's very understandable how to deliver a business um, effectively and efficiently with the right candidature for the requirements of the op um, whilst actually not letting letting the whole world know of what you're doing yeah. um, if looking at it realistically i'd say that the using of what whatsapp groups and the like is done more so as a lazy approach to it um, because um, for the sake of the time of sending one message out they will then get all these replies done and dusted yeah okay they can reply saying yes yeah, send your cv send references send a dbs check send a copy of your SIA license, da, 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 da. They, go on a UK, they go on the SIA license checker, they do all that, what they have to do. Um, and in effect, um, it's a process that actually that works for them. It's not a process I would do because I'm not interested in having uh, the whole world on a WhatsApp group. And not, not only that, the, the people at any level aren't interested in constantly being harassed by, um, by WhatsApp group pinging on their phone. Um, it becomes a fine art of, of approaching uh, the right candidates for your requirements um, without um, hassling them. Um, uh, it, it's one of those things that it, it doesn't surprise me. Um, the industry will move uh, from Facebook uh, to WhatsApp and it will move on to another social media yeah. forum in a few years' time. Yeah. Um, the, the industry uh, develops at an alarmingly slow rate, um, but it does so as a um, almost a disease. <laughs> it, it, it actually moves from one area to another. It migrates, and it, uh, it actually migrates with some people, and then other people following suit until the whole industry do, does it. Yeah. And it's a um, uh, it's not a joined up process that I would certainly adopt. Yeah. I, and I bring that up because obviously, again, as a, as a newcomer and, and new to relatively new to the UK, still, um, I didn't know what the lay of the land was. So, you know, you're on LinkedIn trying to network as much as possible, trying to build my my you know connections here um, just to, to get an idea. And so these these WhatsApp groups kept popping. I'm like, this is an interesting way to do business. Uh, sure, I'll, I'll I'll join a couple. Quickly realizing like most of the jobs being posted are sort of your nine ten pound an hour you know CP in London jobs. Um, and, and not to sound pretentious or, or you know, like uh, up myself, but I was like, that's not really what I'm interested in. And, you know, it's, it's not like you were saying, it, it's not like the close protection mindset. It's, it's uh, oh, can you fill into this guy in a DS role? Um, but hang on a second. I, I, I didn't want to do DS work as a, as a CP license holder and, and with my interest in CP. Um, but I also found it to be a bit more like the, the people who are in charge of the WhatsApp groups a bit as a virtue signaling kind of you know like i'm here to provide jobs and move the industries forward and this and that. <laughs> i don't i don't quite quite agree but hey if you're getting people work and they're they're looking for work then you know good on you like it's it's uh i guess it's contributing somehow um there, so there, there's, there is an awful lot of um virtue signaling and uh self one-upmanship yeah um the the industry um is very is very uh, very much divided 
um, down the line. So you will have the vast majority of the industry dealing with, um, the, the, they are in effect bottom feeders. Yeah. They are people that will provide these nine, 10 pound an hour jobs, and there'll be people that will actually do them. Yeah. And, and as like you, that is an area of the industry where it's horses for courses, I won't knock them. The old mantra of you've got to put bread on the table. If yeah. it works for them, crack on. Yeah. The close protection that I'm interested in is the higher level, serious business of yeah. the proper reasoning why you need CP, why that individual on the street has got to be 100% observant and understand and, and, and feel and become part of that street scene to understand um, and vet everyone on that street, to have a feeling of that street and to um, uh, be proactive as much as possible on that street, not just with a, their thumb up their backside, walking along, following someone, uh, just casually walking around, going on their phone, what they're, what they're thinking of doing the next day, or yeah. even, even just playing the part, even enjoying, even uh, the part of enjoying, look at me, or, or the self-gratification the self of being in that position without actually being serious on doing the job. Yeah. There are so many aspects to it that, that, that aren't filtered because of zero selection process, where that person doing the role is totally unfit for purpose, totally unsuitable for it, totally unsuitable in every single way. Um, yeah. But of course, like you say, there's an awful lot of um, self-virtue that goes on uh, because they want to put themselves out there to appear to be helping the industry to, to position themselves best place to get, try and get on with everyone. Um, yeah. If you don't, if you try and get on with everyone, then you're sort of opening doors. Yeah, he's a good lad. Bring him on. That sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, as I say, it's horse for courses. If that's what you want to do, crack on. Yeah. There's another area of the industry that is far more serious, and the close protection provision is serious for it, um, and it requires a totally serious person to do it. Yeah. Do Do you ever get um, you know from your fellow sort of business owners in this realm? any criticisms of well richard we're in london like you don't we don't need to have tier one operatives protecting you know our no. clients what's what's the risk like from other companies no that's because no. i was going to say like uh this this there's been a lot of chat when i was in these whatsapp groups going you know i, I can't believe these companies are only hiring ex-police and ex-military and then on top of that some of them were only hiring like sf like what in the world would an sf uh, you know, an XSF uh, veteran uh, do in London that I can't do. And I'm like, are you like, I, I, I had no answer. So I just left the group. <laughs> um, On to a sort of maybe a more positive spin potentially. So at the moment, my understanding is that having the SIA is better than nothing. Where do you see uh, in terms of if, if we could maybe shed some positivity other than just it's better than nothing? Is there anything else that uh the asa has done to really you know uh, pr progress the, the the industry um uh you know obviously things like your criminal background checks your dbs checks that's it that's obviously a, a great move forward but again it's it's more of an hr tick box to say that we're not hiring criminals um it, it, where do you see this going in the future you know five ten years um is it a hopeful outlook or are we sort of just in this position where it's just going to con continuously you know either drive down to the bottom feeders? What's your perspective? In order to look where an organization is going, you have to look at where it's been. Mm. 
And if you were to look over the past 16 years and the, uh, the progression, if you can want of a better word, of the SIA since 2006 to the present day, where is it gone? Well, it started off with board members that didn't have anything uh, as in terms of security knowledge or experience to a board that has a little bit. Yeah. It's gone from a, um, a specific duration of a course to now a longer course. It's gone from a specific content to an increased content. Um, regardless of that content not being fit for purpose, regardless of the duration not being fit for purpose, regardless of those board members not really being fit for purpose. Is it is it better to know how it was on day one, week one? Yes, it is. Yeah. I'd say. So the progress, the wheels of progress are turning slowly. And um, if you were to actually ask me what, okay, what's going to happen in the next 10 years, I'd like to, th I'd like to think that the progress will continue on that vein. Yeah. But in reality, in another 10 years, the course still will not be fit for purpose. Yeah. Um, there's been often, since I've been in the industry all these years, there's often been a talk about some industry body that supports um, the workers, some form of union. Um, and it has been tried. Um, yeah. It's been tried and tested and failed, really, because the, the industry doesn't work on the same principles as any other organisation. It's because it's not a single organization. It's an industry full of individual workers. Yeah. And you, it's impossible to form a union, paid or, or not paid, to work on the benefit of those uh, workers where it would have any political clout. Sure. Yeah. Because um, no politician will be able to, or anyone will be able to uh, influence the approach of the Home Office. Um, the only way the the industry as a whole in the United Kingdom will change would be for the Home Office to uh, actually, or rather the House of Lords, to pass uh, new legislation um, that changes the, uh, the licensing process. Yeah. Um, so in terms of uh, the training standards, um, it would then, say, go on to a, a business. I mean, they, could, they can't incorporate dual licensing for for one industry um they, they, they can't do that they can't they can't have legislation for the individual and a legislation for the business right. it's, it's, you can't have double licensing um the, the the situation will not change really if i was a hazard a bet it will not change yeah this is this is what we have <clears throat> now yeah in an ideal world everything will be sewn up you will have a um, uh, a body that works on behalf of UK government, yeah, the Home Office, but that body would be given the full uh, um, reins and responsibility to do things how they see fit. Yeah. And that body would have uh, politicians in it, uh, it would have subject matter experts in it, but it would be a proper professional body that focuses on delivering the highest standards. And the argument for this body would be so that the private industry, the private security industry, could be looked to to support law enforcement. Yeah. When we look at the deaths of the recent David, uh, David Amos MP, who was stabbed, 
um, and you look back at all the other attacks on members of parliament, the constituencies, the, uh, the, the verbal diarrhea and the, the online attacks against them. Yeah. The law enforcement have got a responsibility, a duty of care to protect them, those members of parliament. There has to be uh, a provision of operational oversight sure, concern yeah. there. Um, it's their duty to do so because they're working for the Crown and it's the Crown's responsibility to do that. Yeah. Now, there was a, um, a feasibility study conducted um, many years ago um, where I think it was during the economic crash in 2007 and eight, where um, the cutbacks that the government affected the police, which subsequently affected the, um, the trained protection person, the people right. of the um, National Police and the Metropolitan Police. And a feasibility study was conducted to look to the private sector to undertake various roles, such as visiting heads of state, foreign visiting heads of states to the UK. Could the private sector actually take over the protection responsibility for them? And during a feasibility study, they soon realised, uh, specifically on the driving aspect, that the standards can't be met. The standards are not fit for purpose. So here we have a government regulator that works on behalf of the Home Office imposing standards that aren't fit for purpose, as admitted by the UK's own law enforcement, to undertake a role for visiting foreign heads So that is an example in itself uh, and highlights the, the conflict between uh, the Home Office remit and what is required on the ground. Yeah. You have the, the, the Police Protection Command actually state that categorically the private sector isn't fit for purpose. And, that, and in terms of the stabbing of the MPs as constituencies and the security reviews as a result of that, could the private sector actually undertake that role? Um, and there is an element of, yes, they could, but in support of the police. Yeah. Um, because uh, as long as the selection process of those uh, people was right and proper, yeah. um, and procedures it's more a procedural thing as opposed to a reactive one yeah. it's a it's a case of uh more a case of a cost reason why that didn't go ahead but yeah. the thing is that is dealing with a specific low-end a low-end crime with high high-end repercussions um and it is it's a an aspect that uh, the requirement if you want to have an industry where members of it could be looked to from law enforcement to help them, to support them, to increase these standards. And uh, another example of this is Manchester Arena inquiry, you see. So the, the private security industry as a whole, when looking at what, what occurred and the failings of the industry, the failings of the SIA, in not imposing the right standards and oversight and all the rest of it, what you have is a situation that you have a uh, a body of people in the private security security industry that are low-end workers. They're low-end workers because of all the reasons we've already discussed. Yeah. There are no industry entrance benchmarks. Yeah. There's no, uh, there's no, the training is so poor. The actual delivery of the service is so poor. They, you, you couldn't make it up. If, if the SIA was in charge of um, uh, in, imposing the training standards for the Met Police royalty protection, there'll be a public, there'll be a, there'll be a, an outcry never seen before. Yeah. There'll be, a, there'll be an absolute, um, uh, the senior command of the protection, 
police protection would actually have a, a, a serious word with them. Yeah. Um, it's, and, and yet it's not fit for purpose for them, and yet apparently it's fit for purpose for the private security yeah. industry. Yeah. And, and the thing is, one has to admit that um, it's a complete roll of the dice because if there's a lack of frequency of any serious events occurring where the, the actions or inaction of the operative could be attributed to the training that they've conducted, which in turn is attributed to the SIA, yeah. because of the lack of frequency of this incident, nothing is seen, tried and tested on the ground or in training. Yeah. The SIA then are disconnected and that's why they come out, they like to enjoy stating that uh, it's the employer's or, or uh, training provider's responsibility. Yeah. They disconnect themselves from it. And if you're looking at physical intervention, if they are to impose pain compliant moves and holds, um, and then someone who stood up in court, uh, a security industry worker, CP license holder, stood up in court defending his actions, yeah. and he turns around and says, well, that's what I was taught on an SIA course. Yeah, the SIA would then be in the dock. Yeah. And they, they want to disconnect themselves from any possibility of that. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a case of uh, uh, a slopey shouldered passing the buck attitude that's yeah. happened from day one, week one. Yeah. So the whole process of these standards and training, you're asking me, how do I see the future of 10 years? Nothing's going to change yeah. because you have, because everything is integral right from, right from the ground up. Everything is, um, is, is part of the machine. Yeah. Um, and no amount, no amount of lobbying by a single person or even the industry as a whole will change the mindset or remit of the Home Office. Yeah, and that it's, I mean, it's such a, you know, I, I never like to get too political because I think there's enough uh, political commentary out there, but it is just the standard uh, stereotypical government uh, mindset where it's, you know, you're just passing the buck on to the next person, uh, very uh, limited sort of time frames that you're working on whether it's you know a four-year cycle eight-year cycle but it's, it's not a long-term progression that they're that they're really looking for um i suppose the other the other thing i always think about is the you know globally there's no real standard other than the sia so they, they you know their excuses could, could also be well you know other countries look to us and and, and we're doing it right uh, or we're the only ones really doing it so uh, you know another excuse to, to, to be had there um so going back, so currently, so we mentioned the close protection book. You're you've done a revision of it. Um, I, I I don't have the, the first copy, and I put myself on the mailing list for the second copy. So I'm hoping that looking forward to, to, to reading it um, one day. Um, how, how is that journey into you know uh, writing a book? Um, was it something that you'd always you know wanted to do, or um, did you sort of uh, how did you come about you know becoming an author basically? Um, so basically, I, I did a university degree course, um, and I uh, I did my final paper on the SIA, and it got me going. And I, I was I wrote most of it while waiting in business lounges at the airports, yeah. and um, uh, and 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 that just that just carried on. Um, and it's there's something very sort of uh, um, uh, nice about typing on a laptop and on the word doc and. Graphs, yeah. images, and, and what have you, and I, I enjoyed the process of doing that. And as right, it's, there's something very therapeutic about writing something you're passionate because all your frustrations that are inside you, you actually, you actually you're actually spewing really? them out onto paper. You see, yeah. 
Yeah, right at the um, end. As, as eloquently as you can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's so I thought, well, let's let's write a book about this now. Yeah. Um, so that was the first book. And the interesting thing about that coming to the end of that first book was such that um, I, uh, I I said to myself, I could carry on writing this. I just could carry on writing furthermore. Yeah. Um, but I thought, well, actually, let's finish it. The book's pretty big now. It's pretty heavy. Let's let's get it printed. Yeah. So 10 years on, because that was published in 2012. So it's now 10 years on. Um, or rather seven years on, I started writing a, a, another book. Um, it was going to be a second volume um, where it was going to be about everything that works in conflict to right. operational performance. And um, as I started writing it, I found myself repeating much of the content of the first book because it's simply impossible to write about something that's in conflict some, with something when you don't actually write about how it's meant to be. They both they're both integral. They both go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, so I thought, right, let's do let's cut away from this. Let's do a proper revised edition of it. Yeah. Um, and so the first book was five hundred and sixty-seven pages. This is an additional two hundred and fifty pages. So it's going to be around eight hundred and twenty pages book. It's going to be absolutely heavy, two and a half kilograms, very thick. Yeah. Um, yes, it could be used as a doorstop, but if someone starts reading it, there'll be yeah. a better person at the end of it for sure. We could use that in the uh, physical intervention course as a uh, as a. <laughs> um, how did it go with like in terms of publishing and are you doing it privately or is it with a with a company? Um, you know what's yeah, I'm, I'm doing it on my own self publishing. Yeah. yeah, awesome. Yeah, nice. Um, yeah, like, yeah, I look for, I've, I've hit the mailing list. So um, when when is the revision revised um, edition coming out? It will, should be should be out in October if all goes well. Okay, cool. So yeah, yeah. All right. Well, and, and what's what's the future hold? Um, you know, you've got your company going on. You've got the book coming out. Uh, what, what's what else is in store? Um, well, that that's it really. Um, things are taking a, a bit of a uh, more of a relaxed uh, relaxed state of life at the moment now. Yeah. Um, but you'll have to read the last three chapters in the book to understand why. Perfect. I like that. <laughs> awesome. Um, and where can people find you? I'll put the you know your information with the with the website for the book and everything in the show notes. But um, where else can people you know find you, connect with you, uh, you know, get in touch with potential jobs uh, or even just you know advice that sort of thing? LinkedIn is the best place. Yeah. Perfect. So just your name. Yeah. I know. Again, I'll put that in the description. Yeah. And before I release the episodes, I normally um, uh, even do a little spiel on LinkedIn as well. So people listening uh look out for that anyways richard i won't take up much more of your time we've been going for a little while now which is which, and it's look it's great um as a yeah. newcomer in the industry listening to somebody so passionate about it who's been doing it for so long uh and still having that passion uh one of my favorite quotes uh, uh it was from an australian uh, general morrison was you know the standards you walk past are the standards that you accept uh, absolutely you know as um as a passionate uh you know security uh from my law enforcement background to now the CP world, uh, thank you for not accepting the standards and, and uh, <laughs> you know, potentially paving the way forward to, to, to better things uh, happening. Um, will we ever see you in a SIA, maybe director's board or in any capacity um, in that realm? No, no, not at all. <laughs> yep. uh, for, for two reasons. First, first reason is they wouldn't have me. And the second reason I wouldn't want to be associated with them. <laughs> 
No, fair enough. Awesome. Well, thank you again, and um, yeah, have have a great day. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Great. Thank you very much, Lilia. Cheers. Thanks.